Welcome to the Think Like Amazon podcast, the show where I sit down with former Amazon executives to discuss Amazon's unique principles and processes and tease out how you can apply them to grow and manage your business. I'm Tyler Wallace, a seven-year former Amazonian, current brand consultant, and your host as we learn to think like Amazon. Welcome to the Think Like Amazon podcast. Today, I'm pleased to have Kyle Walker with me on the show. Kyle spent over seven years at Amazon, where he launched multiple billion-dollar programs, including Amazon Renewed and Amazon Exclusives, now known as Amazon Launchpad. In Kyle's last role at Amazon, he led new business strategy on Amazon's brand mergers and acquisitions team. Since leaving Amazon in 2020, Kyle has co-founded two companies, The Lab Consult, which helps e-commerce brands implement systems to scale profitably online, and Foundry Brands, an FBA brand aggregator that recently raised $100 million to buy and grow consumer brands. Kyle, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, man. This is a fun conversation for me because you and I have worked together both at Amazon and then currently. And so I'll probably play a little bit more naive in terms of poking into things that I might know part of the answer to, but I think will be really interesting for our listeners to hear more about. So on that note, you know, I gave a little bit of an overview on what you did at Amazon, but there's a lot more story there. So can you tell us a bit more about you and some of your work at Amazon? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm just happy that our paths continue to cross, Tyler. So, you know, from the day that we worked together when you were, uh, when you were a category manager and I was an account manager and still to today, I think, you know, the time passing and our paths continuing to cross is super cool. But yeah, my, my work history at, at Amazon really started in 2013 uh, when I was an account manager. And I had kind of almost a dual role there where one, I was, you know, helping our team who managed about the top 20% of sellers on Marketplace, which at that time was give or take about 12 million in revenue and up. And what I thought was interesting, having worked with account managers, you know, in prior jobs was I always viewed account managers in, in my prior jobs when we engaged with them to be mostly triage, like it was very little kind of proactive support. It was a lot of reactive support. And it was made very clear when I started at Amazon that that wasn't our job. Our job was to make sure that we were learning from those sellers and translating that back to the team to make a smarter marketplace. And if you think about it, it makes a huge difference in how you perceive your job. Certainly I'm there as a daily resource to help solve problems and hopefully make the seller's experience on Marketplace really good. But I'm also responsible to all the millions of other sellers that I don't work with every day to make sure that the Marketplace gets smarter too by taking that voice and that experience and those stories and translating those back to the tech team so that the Marketplace continues to evolve. And then the second part of my job was really helping to grow the use business. So at the time, if you had like, say, a second iPad that you got for Christmas, you could always sell it as an individual seller on Amazon. But we didn't necessarily have a professional group of sellers that sold used product. And used product could be anything from high quality refurbished product to something that was used a handful of times. And, you know, somebody doesn't need it anymore and wants to sell it. And 
for a lot of customers, there's a lot of value in those product lines. And we didn't have a great way to professionalize that selling service in the same way that we had done for the rest of marketplace. And so had kind of that dual role was about a year into it and had had a conversation at CES with the accounts that I managed. And I remember just asking them a very simple question, which keep coming back to multiple times throughout our talk today is, I don't think any of the programs that we ever created in Amazon were genius ideas that came down from on high or like you just had this epiphany. It was literally taking my job very literally saying, if my job is to serve the sellers and make marketplace better by understanding what the sellers need, then probably the best thing I can do is just ask the sellers what they need, like what it is that we can do to help you. And then obviously I'm using my filter internally to say what's realistic and how would we take feedback like, hey, we need a better merchandising program for refurbished products. Okay, well, that's a that's a high level statement. How do I take that back, interpret that, and think about all the different moving pieces that would be required on Amazon side to make a better merchandising experience for refurbished products? And, and that's really where Amazon Renewed started. It started as the certified refurbished program, and it literally started with that conversation at CES, coming back, sharing that with the rest of our tech team and product teams, saying, I think we could do something that looks like this. And eventually we literally created a flat file of a hundred products. We vetted, I think at the time about three or four really highly reputable sellers that, you know, had really robust kind of refurbishment programs where, you know, they furbish product for Apple or they refurbish product for Beats by Dre or whatever, very popular consumer products. And we'd go out and we'd visit all their facilities and we realized how quality their operation was and that they were going to uphold customer experience at Amazon. And so we essentially created about 100 products, three or four sellers to go source these products. And then we created these listings that we called Certified Refurbished. And I remember it's kind of a crazy story when you think about the scale of Amazon. But I remember a couple of weeks later, uh, one of my colleagues calling me in the morning and it was like seven o'clock. He was back on the East Coast. So he would tend to call me really early. And I was an early riser into the office. And he called me and he goes, do you realize those hundred products, how much business they're doing right now? And this is like two weeks into it. So I hop in and I look and I go, oh my gosh, like, I can't believe how big this has gotten with just a hundred products. And within a week, it was like, this is the greatest thing in this business. It became the focal point of OP1 that year, uh, which is kind of our planning process for, for the next year. Got a ton of attention and, you know, has since evolved into a global multi-billion dollar program. And literally it started with, hey, let's go test with these hundred products and these three, four sellers. And again, originated from a conversation of what can we do to help from there? started noticing that, you know, we have more and more brands every day. And that's really where Amazon exclusives, which has now evolved into Amazon Launchpad came from. And it was really, I remember when I interviewed at Amazon, somebody said, you never know, you could have a great idea in a meeting. Somebody goes write a document and six months later, that's your job. And that's kind of what happened with exclusives was, hey, there's a lot of brand owners coming. 
our marketplace is really set up for resellers, meaning we get a bunch of listings on competing for the customer's attention by competing for that buy box. It changes when you have a brand that wants to tell a more robust story and differentiate their product, and they might have different sets of content needs, and they're not competing just over the buy box because they have the buy box. It's their brand. And so the whole experience needs to change. And again, returning back to what worked well and renewed, reached out to about 30 brand owners and said, what can we do to help you go faster, to be more innovative, to serve customers better? What is it on the marketplace side we could do? And remarkably, all of the responses came back and they, they really fit nicely in about four buckets. It was, I really want help figuring out how to get my products discovered. I want to be able to continue to merchandise my products effectively. I want a different way to present my brand. Like I need more content and different types of content. And I want to protect my brand. And so if you take those four things, some of those happened manually at first within exclusive. So if you think about brand presentation, we immediately opened up the ability if you were in the exclusives program to have access to like A plus content. Well, at some point, we started seeing that A-plus content was valuable, not just to exclusives brands, but all brands. And so A-plus content kind of rolls out. And you can do the same thing across all four of those pillars to say, look, discoverability and overcoming cold start has changed because you, and merchandising have changed because you have a whole different set of advertising products now than you had you know, even four or five years ago. And a lot of those were driven by getting parity to our marketplace sellers in terms of all the tools that we had inside of Amazon. And brand registry has obviously changed the way that a brand is presented, the type of content you have, the enhanced brand content that's available. So in a lot of ways, it was felt like we were kind of on the front end of the brand revolution. And then really the last and third phase of my time there was really spent within the M&A function of saying, look, we've probably helped at this point 10,000 brands launch and acclimate to Amazon's marketplace through exclusives and Launchpad. But what happens when we see a brand that we start to see a blueprint and you go, I know this brand's going to be successful. They've got all the components to make it successful. What do you do? Do you want to treat them exactly the same as every other exclusive seller? Or is there another way to think about how we can provide value for them as they provide value for our customers? And one of the vehicles to do that was through thinking through all the different M&A options that you have, one of which was warrants or options in the company to say, look, in exchange for us giving a lot of free merchandising, which on our side it has no real cost, but it has a big opportunity cost because that's all space that we could sell, right? Through advertising. And so we had to figure out how to, to kind of monetize it, but we also had to be really conscious of these startups who aren't flush with cash at the beginning, right? And so we tried to create a system through M&A tools and contracts that would say, look, if we give all of this to you and we end up winning together, how do we figure out the path then so that we're winning together and I guess use a gambling quote, you're paying us with house money at that point because we've all won together as opposed to distorting the brand's journey. But that's kind of my career in a nutshell. I always think of it as kind of three phases, but they all really started with the same thing, which is 
what can we do to help? And then building a program and tactics around it. I definitely think you have a repeatable trend there that worked really well for you. And our interactions at Amazon, Kyle, you always struck me as somebody that was able to come up with an opportunity, but then also get traction on it. And we see that that was successful in each of these three phases of of your Amazon career. I want to go back to your time on Amazon Renewed because uh, I think you gave some of the early story that happened right before you and I worked together on Certified Refurbish. You know, you, you and I and a couple others then kind of took things from, I think, where your story ended to uh, scaling to about $100 million during our time on the project. But I want to understand a little bit more like what that process looked like for you of coming up with that flat file of 100 products and, and getting to that point. So we talk a lot, you know, and we've talked on this podcast before about staying close to customers and collecting customer anecdotes and customer obsession. Um, clearly, you were doing that in these conversations with sellers, both here and maybe with exclusives in these other businesses. Was there a pattern in terms of, was it just that you were listening more closely than maybe others were when sellers were bringing up these requests and you were taking notes on those and acting on those? Or did you have questions and maybe you were interviewing or guiding sellers or customers in ways that perhaps others weren't that would help uncover these opportunities? What would you say is your MO to identify these opportunities? I think it's probably a combination of both of those things, really. Like, so, you know, my experience in school, you know, I remember taking a negotiation course as part of my master's work. And I remember one of the things that I'll always continue to remember, and and I used to even teach my students because I taught at the University of South Florida for a few years after I finished my master's, was when you're thinking about negotiating, one of the first steps is really truly to ask the questions that get you the answers that that get all of the interests out in the open, right? And so having a marketing background in undergrad, having this experience of going through quite a bit of qualitative negotiation training, you know, I think probably part of my communication style is really set to just give very broad, open-ended questions so that I can hear a big response that's not tailored to the questions that I'm asking. If you ask very specific questions, you get very specific answers. If you ask very broad questions, you get very broad answers. When you get very broad answers, you have to start bucketizing those things into themes, right? And I think the other thing that may have helped in a lot of ways was my job prior to Amazon was actually an e-commerce operation at GNC. And one of the things that I think you start to think through from a role like that is that there's some anticipated outcome. And then there's all of this back-end work that needs to be there and be present to support getting to that optimal outcome. You know, if you think about the experience on say gnc.com because we're talking about it today and we go hey we want to make our checkout process more simple well that's a big broad answer that then needs to be deconstructed into what is the current state of our checkout process and why is it complicated what would be the things that simplify that and then what data points or back-end infrastructure need to be true to execute according to that and then The whole time, you're essentially writing up system requirements. You're writing a document that says, hey, our business requirements are this. 
these are the different data sets and APIs that we need, or, or this is how this is going to come together in real time. Then you're translating that to the tech team who's going to pepper you with questions, rightfully so, because it's their time to develop this thing. And throughout that entire process, you haven't lost sight of the fact that we're changing the customer experience, right? But there's all these steps that go into it. And so I think in a lot of ways, I tend to, as a marketer, if you were giving a survey and you want to know what somebody thinks about your brand, you can say something very specific, which again, will get you a very specific response or just tell me about your experience. Tell me about your experience is going to get you the most honest response that you can possibly get. First rule of doing academic research is that you have to acknowledge that every research project has some amount of bias in it because you're the one that asked the question. So like it's biased by nature, right? Like you. And so as much as you can, removing any potential future bias from the process gets you the most genuine answer. And I think when we ask those questions, what led us to, we have this really high quality product. We take a lot of pride in what we do. And we feel like we differentiate ourselves because of our refurbishment process. We have all this selection that's not currently on Amazon because customers haven't really seen the value of it yet, but we know that there's potential because we're doing it elsewhere or we're selling it direct or we're selling it to wholesalers. And so pretty soon you start putting together the puzzle piece of, well, Amazon's always had this flywheel of, Selection is going to bring more competition, more customers, more traffic, et cetera. So if I want to drive selection, and I know there's this big chunk of selection that's out there, what does the experience have to look like to make that selection valuable enough to put on Amazon? And it really came down to merchandising and building that flat file, you know, to your point about listening to customers. I remember my colleague and I, Matt, were building the the flat file because we had kind of formalized what the plan was going to look like. And then we were like, okay, we have to build this flat file. Well, we take for granted. We can tell people, like I could tell sellers that I worked with, oh, just create a flat file, create your new listing. But I'd never actually built one. I have no reason to go build a flat file. And man, that was an eye-opening experience. There's like In the PC category, as you know, there's like 400 different fields and 12 of them actually matter. Like you could leave 388 of them blank and your listing will go through. But if you miss any one of these 12, your flat file is going to get rejected. Except we don't tell you which 12 fields those are, right? And so you have, you know, every seller that ever listens to this is probably going to laugh hysterically, but... You have me and Matt there sitting there going, okay, we got four, 400 fields. We don't know which 12 are actually required. And we keep guessing and resubmitting and our file keeps getting denied. And, you know, we probably spent a good three or four hours before we finally figured out the, the 12 fields and got the right person to tell us what the 12 fields were. And meanwhile, uh, later that afternoon, I'm riding on the elevator with our GM asked me how it's going. And I said, you know, Matt and I really struggled creating a flat file today for a, for a pilot project. And, you know, I was lucky enough to have great mentors at Amazon and he just looks at me very serious and in the eyes and goes, 
write that down and capture that anecdote somewhere because that's going to be incredibly valuable to pass back to the tech team at some point. And I think it's by no means perfect, but I think you've seen communication improve a lot over the past four or five years. And part of that is because we're capturing anecdotes constantly to try and share back of where everything was done with good intent. But if you're trying to instruct somebody on doing something and you already know the process, you may skip a step or you may omit something. And so those anecdotes, you know, kind of fuel where there might be potential communication gaps too. We're talking a lot about the think big principle at Amazon. I think these are all really good examples of, of what became think big programs at Amazon. And I think you've done a really good job through your examples, Kyle, of illustrating how customer obsession and think big are inseparable in almost every instance at Amazon. You have to have one and the other together. Uh, And I think two great examples you gave of that are one, asking these open-ended questions of sellers and not coming in with an agenda, but taking the time and collecting those anecdotes, seeking them out, making sure that you have an ear to hear on a consistent basis what the the seller's pain points are, what their opportunities that they see are. And then second is not, not just listening to them, but understanding firsthand what that experience is like. So really being able to empathize with your customer. And so going through this flat file process that you know you probably previously assumed, hey, why can't every seller do this? Like, what's the big deal? Uh, it wasn't until you actually went through it and spent a few hours in the seller's shoes, do you really understood where that process was broken and could be improved. And so I think those are two actions, listening and asking those open-ended questions to hear what feedback sellers already have. And then also going through the processes, test driving the processes that your customers are using to see what they're like firsthand that are super key to connecting this customer obsession to these think big ideas. And then also, um, I love that you probably, without knowing it, gave an example of Amazon's working backwards process, where you, you talked about changing the shopping experience and then working back to figure out what technical changes needed to be made with the engineering and tech teams, what the customer journey changes might look like, and working back from this end state or goal to what had to be put in place to get there. In talking a little bit more about think big, There's another part of this leadership principle that says leaders create and communicate a bold direction that inspires results. So presumably, like it was one thing for you to collect all these golden nuggets from sellers and customers. uh, But the second half of the challenge, right, is like, how do you get traction? How do you get adoption and, and actually build these programs and get the resources? Can you share an example of how you were able to do that, Amazon? Yeah, there's probably the best example is exclusive. So I remember you know, as part of the typical Amazon process that that you'll remember, you know, once you kind of circulate a document and you get, you know, enough sign off to kind of create some momentum, you typically start socializing that document around to various other stakeholders, some of which you may need their support to get the program off the ground at the beginning, some of which you may you know, not need support for six, 12 months, but you want them to be aware so that maybe their, your roadmaps, your respective roadmaps start getting a little closer over time. And and maybe you work on something in the future. 
And so one of the last steps after we had kind of socialized the exclusives program, which really was going to start as a pilot, we were, our goal was to go get 15 brands in the first quarter and learn all the things that we could learn. And I'll never forget this. We're having one of our final reviews with our VP at the time. And one of the GMs, actually the GM that I was in the, the elevator with that told me to save the anecdote on the flat file, he's in the meeting and he looks at me and in front of everyone and including this big group of senior leadership, he just looks at me and he goes, Kyle, you got six months. And I kind of looked at him and he goes, you got six months from today to be back in this room telling us exclusives is a hit and we need 10 times the amount of resources. We're learning a lot from exclusives and we should continue for a year, but I don't see this becoming big or We've spent six months on it. We've learned some lessons, but we need to kind of deprecate the program and, and move on. But he's like, you got six months to figure out the answer to one of those three paths and the clock starts today. And I just remember thinking, wow, I'm on the clock, like, <laughs> uh, which is kind of nerve wracking, right? Like, I think Amazon has a culture that, you know, you'd probably agree. It's okay to miss a target, miss a goal, have a program that doesn't work out as you anticipated, so long as you learned your lesson. However, it's just human nature that you go, hey, if I'm if I'm sticking myself out here a little bit, like I want it to be successful so that they look at Tyler or Kyle and they go, hey, whenever we give them something and some opportunity to have a little bit of freedom, they make something good out of it. Like it's human nature to want to be associated with things that are successful. So I walk out of that room and I think the first stage was really clear to me. It was like, okay, this is very obvious. Like we're going to have a very small specialized team where our job is just to go out and get 15 brands. And I knew that manually between the team that we had, which was what, three or four people at the time and our plan and the brands that we had identified, we were going to be successful. Like we were going to get 15 brands. So then the challenge becomes, we actually got 19 brands in the first quarter. And I remember running into my VP at the time and I see him in the hallway and I said, Hey, um, you know, we're, we're at 19 brands. Our, our goal was to get 15 in the program. They're continuing to grow. They're giving us positive feedback but we've got 10 other brands that are ready to sign up in the next couple of weeks as well. Can, can we keep going? Like, I didn't know the answer. You know, I later learned as, as a more senior Amazonian that it was my job to give them the answer, not to ask them. But what was funny is he looked at me and he laughed and he goes, yes, Kyle, it's okay to exceed your goal. And I was like, that wasn't the point. The <laughs> point was we're pretty much at capacity with the team that we have now. We're going to need more people if you want the next 10 brands. And he was like, oh, I get it. Um, just open up the job rec and, and I'll approve it. And so the program grew that way very organically through a lot of contacts. And we probably ended the year with about 75 active brands. And we'd done about $60 million in sales. And that seemed like a huge, huge accomplishment, like given 18 months prior, this was an idea and a document that was like one paragraph in OP1, which 
you know, one paragraph in OP1 is still a pretty big accomplishment, right? But to have grown into this big, robust program that now employs people, that all that blueprint seemed very clear. It was like, that was very aligned to what we kind of started with. I think the biggest challenge then was, you probably got this question too. It's uncomfortable, but in a good way, when you get the question of, well, so how would we do this for a million sellers? And you're like, I don't know. I'm tapped out over here trying to support 75 with four people. Like this million dollars seems so big. But then again, you kind of rely on those same principles that we talked about earlier. The question I always asked myself was what would have to be true in order for that to happen? Well, we clearly can't manage the program the same way we're managing it now, because if we're at capacity with four people and 75 brands, a million brands, we're probably not going to hire thousands of people. So you think about what are the, what are the engagements that take the most time? What are the things that we could look to automate so that we didn't have to do the same things? And the challenge for me that still continued to be a challenge, you know, three or four years later was to me, exclusives and our team and our culture was really built around service to these sellers that were in the program. And most of the ways that you automate things in a lot of ways, depersonalize the experience. And I think our program was known for having a very personal experience. So constant balance and and back and forth was how do you continue to grow and scale the program and automate the things that you can without losing the essence of the reason that you exist and i think that continues to still be a challenge and and probably was what led to kind of the focus on MA was like at some point you can scale yourself right out of having an essence. You can you can be just another robotic machine that that isn't providing that personalized experience in essence. And so if you want that and it adds value, then you have to figure out another model. And that's really where that evolved from. Like it wasn't a wasn't a big leap. It was the next logical step. I like the pattern that, that you illustrated of future casting what the business can be in the future. In your example, you know, future casting, having a hundred million sellers in this program, and then asking the question that you shared, what has to be true for that to be a reality? And, and again, working back from there. And then, and then also coming back to this idea of creating and setting and communicating a bold direction and vision, the example you shared of not asking for permission to get to that future state. Instead, saying this is what I need and, and asking for the support that you need to get there because it's it's what you've already decided should happen based on where the business needs to go. Uh, Kyle, I want to fast forward a bit now. You, know, you left Amazon roughly a year ago and you've already started two businesses. So can you tell us a little bit about what the lab is and what Foundry is and going with this theme of listening to customers and thinking big, like what, what were the opportunities that you saw that led you to get involved and and help start both of these businesses? Well, starting the lab was pretty simple. It was, I think that whole, where we ended the last conversation of, you know, more personalized and and more essence that was getting harder and harder to do, to be honest, the size of marketplace, the the growth of marketplace, you know, and, and my specific role 
I took a lot of value and really enjoyed those kind of interactions with sellers and, and doing the work. And, and it was getting harder, both from being in a leadership position and kind of setting strategy as opposed to doing the work. And then the second part was just who do you help as the marketplace grows? It's It becomes a challenging question. And so I really, truly just wanted to get back to doing the work that I truly enjoyed, which was helping these brand owners and entrepreneurs. Like, I mean this sincerely, but I'd never up until now, I'd never had the ability to go out and create something. But I come from a family of entrepreneurs and I appreciate the guts and the challenge and the constant stress to to make something, right? And and I felt a little bit of that when I started the program at Amazon too. Like when you hire people, you go, if this program fails, I have some impact on somebody else's career. Like I want this to be a success. I want them to shine. I want them to view this in four years as a great career move because they trusted my vision. And and so, you know, there is there is a certain amount of stress that comes from creating something or being an entrepreneur. So all of that said. I took a lot of value from the fact that I could be part of, I don't want credit for it. I'm not one of those limelight people that needs a thank you, but like I do enjoy hopefully making somebody's job easier because I appreciate the journey that they're on and, and I know it's hard. And so if I can be a way to help them, you know, I wanted to. And so that's really where the concept of the lab started was thinking through okay, if this is the work that you enjoy doing, one, is there a market for it? Are there people that need your help? And I happen to be fortunate in that, you know, over those seven years at Amazon, I had a pretty good network of contacts that I'd always taken kind of a long-term view of working with. And so there was a lot of consulting work out there. And so that's really where the lab started was saying, we can help in a lot of different ways. There's obviously the Amazon knowledge that we can share. There's business development efforts that can be can be helped within my network. And I really want the lab to be less prescriptive of, hey, we're not a software program that's just one size fits all. We're really a dynamic set of generalists that can help in a variety of things. Like if you think about all the requests that you and I have had over the past six, eight months. They take all shapes and sizes and forms and between our networks, our skill sets, we're able to add value to these companies and take a lot of pride in that. Again, I want credit. I don't think you want credit. We just want to be part of helping the process be a little bit easier for these companies that need help. And then as part of that process, I ended up connecting with one of my former Amazon colleagues, Stefan Haney. Our two other founders, one who came from the private equity world, one who was an entrepreneur. And, and we started saying, I feel like there's this opportunity to use our expertise to help brands grow, provide a path for an exit for these brands, and continue to make these decade durable brands that grow in what the founder poured into the original brand. So we view ourselves as being stewards of those brands. In my view, we're one of the first aggregators that really started from an operations background. Like we didn't start from a finance background. We didn't start from, I mean, we have all those capabilities, right? But we didn't start from just, hey, we're going to buy these businesses and hold them. These are digital businesses that are either growing or dying and they're live creatures. And so there is no buy and hold, there's buy and grow. 
And so I think we approached everything from an operations background and we're fortunate enough to meet two great equity sponsors that I think add a ton of value to our business outside of just the capital that they've entrusted us with. And since then, Foundry's acquired our first two brands. We've got you know several others that'll close within the next 30 to 60 days. And we're kind of off and running on helping these brands kind of take that next level step. And our thing is, again, you talked about future casting. What does Foundry's future look like? Well, it's having a portfolio of brands that are decade durable and trying to assess when you see a brand today or tomorrow, does this brand have the ability to be around and be bigger and and have a positive impact on customers 10 years from now? That's what we're looking for. And so to that end, we look at an awful lot of brands. We buy very few, but we also see ourselves as being an important service step in that process that it's a big life event for all these sellers. And even if we're not the right fit or the brand isn't the right fit, we can be an educator in that process to make sure that people ask the right questions during their exit to make sure that they get the best deal that they can. That's exciting. And I think you've got a great track record in helping brands become enduring and grow. You've done that on Amazon, doing that now think you're admittedly very unique in having started two companies in the last year. There are probably a lot of people that might be listening to this that have thought about entrepreneurship or are starting on the entrepreneurial journey. What advice would you have for somebody looking to start a business in terms of how to apply innovation or this thinking big principle in starting a business? You know, I think in a lot of ways, And I don't know if this works for everybody, but it certainly worked for me was that I always wanted to feel like I had done enough research to know that I have a disproportionate opportunity for success, right? So, you know, we used to talk at Amazon, I think Jeff Bezos had actually been quoted one time on saying like, to make a good innovative decision, you need about 60 to 70% of the available information because the idea is if I have 90 or 100% of the information, everyone else has it too, and I'm probably too late. And if I make the decision at 50%, it's a coin flip and I may or may not be successful. So I want to at least creep over that 50% barrier. And he used to say, you know, arbitrarily, 60 to 70% of the information kind of makes that decision. And I think in a lot of ways, even before hearing that quote, you know, that was something that I thought fueled our innovation too. Like if you think about Renewed, we didn't start out with a hundred products that we thought were failures. We literally went and pulled the data to say, these are literally the top hundred products in consumer electronics. And so we started with the biggest opportunity to prove out that concept. And I think My experience tells me that there's a lot of times where you go, well, I just want to start small. Like, let me test small. Well, if you test small, it may take you two years to figure out what the learnings are. Why not pick out the 100 products? And again, two weeks in, my colleague's calling me going, can you believe how much money it's generating every week? We wouldn't have had that learning and we wouldn't have accelerated those learnings and been able to continue to innovate if we hadn't started from a place where we knew there was a chance that those products would be successful regardless, right? because we picked the most popular ones. So it creates a different challenge in that, could this program continue to scale beyond the top 100 products? Well, we still had to answer that question. 
but at least we had the data to know that there was an opportunity there. We didn't know how long it would go or how long the tail was. And so, you know, exclusives was the same way. We handpicked the top 15 brands. So yeah, there was a good chance that our expertise and kind of vetting all of these sellers, we were going to handpick the right brands to be successful, to help the program grow, you know, within the M&A function, we were clearly handpicking. And in fact, you know, you probably spent six months getting to know somebody before you could withstand the relationship of putting a contract together for 12 weeks. Right. And so starting the lab, starting foundry, it was the same thing. It's like, I want to go into, and I want to spend my time on places where I know my effort has a chance to be successful and be valued and be valuable to those that I'm serving. It's like playing blackjack. Like there's a reason why some of the cards are up and some of the cards are down because there's some amount of risk involved. But the more cards you've uncovered, the more the game becomes completely straightforward. And I think it's always trying to navigate that balance between, have I seen enough cards to know that this is an opportunity? Then if so, I'm not going to see all the cards, but I at least know that I have a chance. I don't think I've ever heard of starting a business being compared to blackjack, but that, that analogy makes a lot of sense, actually. I mean, I love the ideas of starting with 60 to 70% of their needed information, starting big, not small to prove something, you know, not necessarily from a resource and investment perspective, but from a opportunity perspective and idea perspective, start big and to get that validation as quickly as possible. Kyle, obviously you and I chat often. I'm sure we could we could talk all day. I think we've got some really good stories here from your experience. I really appreciate you coming on. Where can listeners go to learn more about Foundry Brands? So you can go to foundrybrands.com and there's actually a connect with us where you can send a note that'll come directly to myself and the rest of our acquisitions team just to learn. There's no pressure. There's nothing promised or committed. It's just really to say, Hey, I was thinking about this. Half the time we're on phone calls is just sharing what we're seeing, what information we have to help you make a more informed decision. And I would say the same thing is true of the lab consult, thelabconsult.com. And I think asking any question that you want to figure out if there's there's an opportunity to, to do something together. And obviously the two businesses are interrelated in a lot of ways because I see the labs, you know, really focused on trying to create that value. And then Foundry, on the other hand, is rewarding you for a lot of that value that you did create. And so there's a lot of synergies between both of those things. And again, at Foundry, we're looking at 30, 35, 40 different data points to kind of value a brand and an opportunity. And those are the same attributes that the lab is helping you to implement. So there's a lot of synergies there and you you can start really either direction. Kyle, it's been awesome having you on the show today, going through this history book of Amazon and, and what you've been able to take forth to these new businesses that you're building now. So thanks again for coming on the show. It's been great having you. Well, thanks for having me. And certainly all those programs that were created, our paths crossed a lot and we needed a lot of great partners and it takes a community to grow those programs. So you were just as much a part of all of that stuff as I was, but appreciate you having me on. It was fun to relive a few years back.